as the guys have said, my name is Dave, Pastor Dave. It's not Pastor Dave, you don't have to call me that, but you can. Um, I am part of the team here, and I am super excited um, this evening. So next week, we are starting a new uh, preaching series. Last week, we finished our summer series. We've spent it in the life of Peter, and I would really encourage you, go back and listen, because there have been some phenomenal talks. Um, but as a preaching group, we got together, and we, and we met, and we were talking about this week, and we were like, what do we want to do uh, in the one in between? And someone suggested, why don't we talk about communion? And I absolutely jumped at this, partly because I love communion. Throughout my faith, it's always been something that's been really important for me. I loved engaging with it. And, and it was that. Mainly, though, my last three preachers I've done have been on doubt, suffering, and opposition. So I was like, yes, please, can I have a talk that's got some joy in it? So communion. Um, so throughout the Bible and also throughout pretty much every culture in history, people use meals as a way of marking key events and remembering key things. So if you think about weddings, birthdays, Christmas, I don't know if any of you guys have started celebrating Thanksgiving. A couple of you. We've started doing Thanksgiving. I don't know why, because I have no idea what Thanksgiving is about, really. I like Basic level from watching Friends, Pilgrims, but that's it. I don't really know. I, I sort of see it as like this kind of Christmas warm-up, like getting my body ready for what's to come. Um, but meals together do something to a community. When you eat together, it deepens community. Um, I have had the pleasure of just being away in West Wales for the last week on holiday. And towards the end, <laughs> woo! Towards the end of the week, some of my very, very dearest friends uh, started arriving. We were going to have a couple of days together. And um, they sort of arrived in dribs and drabs over a couple of days when they were free. And we got to the first evening where we were all there. And everyone had arrived. And we were in the kit. The kids were in bed. We were in the kitchen. We were catching up and laughing and joking. And it was great. I absolutely loved it. And then the meal was ready. We moved through into the dining room, sat down together, said grace, and started eating and there was just this shift of like, you know, we are great friends, and it was great catching up. This is where community happens. There was a deepening of it as we just shared a meal and we laughed together. Now, communion, or the Lord's Supper, breaking of bread, Mass, Eucharist, it is called the love feast once in the New Testament. It's weird that that one hasn't caught on. <laughs> it's a weird invite, isn't it? Hey, didn't know. Um, <laughs> it is the most important one because we as a church are a family. We are a community. And the Lord's Supper is the meal that we eat together. And it points us to the most important person. It points us to the most important event, Jesus on the cross. And it is a regular part of our worship, which is great. The risk, though, is that we start to do it out of habit. We maybe never engage really with what it means, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, what the posture of our heart is, and it becomes this thing, almost like a ritual that we just do. And that is what I want to talk about tonight, getting out of that and being like, what is the heart behind this meal that we were given? So, to do so, we must turn to Scripture to the first time this ever happened. So if you've got a Bible or your phone, or it's going to come up behind me, go to Luke Gospel of Luke 22, 
7 to 20, and I'm just going to read it out. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they said. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you to a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. What a legend. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So, that is the first one. Now, we've got 2,000 years of church tradition sort of adding on top of that and adding things and taking some things away. But the key thing that I want us to notice and to remember is that the church did not make up communion. We didn't invent it. It is Jesus' idea. It was his gift to us. N.T. Wright, who's a theologian, says this. When Jesus wanted to explain to his disciples what his death was all about, he didn't give them a theory He gave them a meal. Now, this meal will be different church to church. You might have grown up in a tradition or you might be used to a tradition where, you know, the guy, you've got someone in a robe and a really cool hat on and he's giving you like a coin made out of rice paper and some port, which is always great. Um, Or you have someone, you know, dressed like one of this lot, giving you like a bit of bread that you sort of have to, you have to take a big enough bit that looks like you're keen, but not too big, because that's kind of like socially unacceptable. Is that like, oh, all right? Um, and like a little shot glass of grape juice or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Anywhere on that spectrum, anything that you're used to, it doesn't matter the differences. What is key is the similarities, the two key elements that are there, the bread and the wine. Now, these parts were not accidental. Um, in year eight, when I was at school doing RE, Uh, we had to eat a Passover meal. Um, And I can tell you there's a lot of stuff on a Passover table. Jesus had a lot of things to choose. He chose the bread and the wine deliberately because they have significance. They have meaning. And that is what I want to look at first. So, the wine. As we read, it was Passover. Now, the significance of this Passover that Jesus is at, to get that, we have to go back to the first Passover, Um, Again, we can read it in Exodus 12, so if you turn right to the beginning of your Bible, second book in, it says this, then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, He will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. Now, if you have read Exodus, 
Or if you have read the Prince of e watched The Prince of Egypt, which is one of my favorite films of all time, you will be familiar with the story. But you might not be, and you might have watched it a long time ago. So just a quick refresher. Um, God's people are in Egypt. They have been there for 400 years, and they are slaves. They are oppressed, forced to work, and routinely murdered. And God calls one of his people, a guy called Moses, to go to Pharaoh, who has set himself up as a god, and say to him, let my people go. Pharaoh refuses, and what follows are ten plagues where God effectively debunks all of the Egyptian gods. So the Egyptian gods, you know, the things that they have power over, the sun and the Nile and all that kind of thing. God goes through those things and declares, no, I am Yahweh, I am sovereign, I have power over this, I am above you, Egyptian gods. You have this awesome display of God's sovereignty and his power, and yet still Pharaoh refuses. And so the plagues culminate in God saying that he is going to pass through the land and kill the firstborn of all of the Egyptians, the oppressors, the slave masters. And he tells his people, who are the oppressed, who are the slaves, to take a lamb without blemish, like a faultless lamb, kill it and mark its blood on the sides and the top of their door frames. This blood will be a sign to God that they are his people. It will save them from the destruction and come the morning, it is going to allow them to walk out of slavery into the freedom that they were designed for. Now, can you guys grab? I've got some props. Some of you guys might know that I am the primary school kids pastor. Um, and over the last year, I've taught our two older groups um, about communion. And this is a visual aid that I have used in those groups. And I think it is incredibly helpful. So, oh yeah, here we go. So I thought you guys might like to benefit from it as well. Oh, look at this. What a team. I just need to just get. <laughs> Can I just say this morning, I said, if this cross falls over, don't worry. It's just a metaphor. Didn't move an inch. And I thought now, I was like, I don't need to say that again. It's not going to fall. There we go. Never mind. You, get, you stay? No, no, you don't stay. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. That's all right. I'm happy. I'm confident. Thanks for your help. <laughs> so, what I think, what I'm about to do, what this visual aid lends us, is the significance and the weight of the symbolism of what Jesus was doing at this Passover meal. So, at Passover, they took a faultless lamb, a lamb without blemish. In John's gospel, he has already declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God. It's killed, um, and its blood is put on the wood of the door frames. Now, using hyssop, I'm not using hyssop, because I don't actually know what it is. Um, and I've just finished decorating my house, and I have loads of these left over, so I'm using one of these. Um, and what it does is it identifies God's people. It saves them from destruction and it allows them to walk into the freedom that they were designed for. And the parallel that Jesus is drawing is exactly this. But only this time he is saying, I am the faultless lamb of God. It is my blood on the wood of the cross, not on the wood of your doorways, that will mark you as my people. It will save you from destruction. And it will allow you to walk in the freedom that I designed you to live in. 
He says in verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, there's a few covenants in the Old Testament, and each of them is marked by the shedding of blood, whether it's of an animal sacrifice or of male circumcision. But what Jesus is saying is those were temporary. This is eternal. He's saying no longer is, is it the blood of a lamb that will save you temporarily. He's saying it is the blood of the lamb of God, of me, my blood, poured out for you that will save you eternally. He's no longer saying it's the blood of circumcision that marks you as my people. He's saying it is my blood, the blood of the Son of Man, that will mark you as my people eternally. We see this. What is, you know, what is the highest expression of love? It is sacrifice. And in this, Jesus is saying his blood is poured out that you might understand the love that God has for you to his disciples and to all of us. He's saying, my blood poured out, that you would understand the love the Father has for you. This cross, the blood of the Lamb of God on the wood of the cross is the highest expression of love that our universe can ever and will ever know. It saves us from destruction. It allows us to walk into the freedom we were created for. And it marks us as his people, people of the new covenant. So, that is the wine. You have the bread bit? Try not to drop anything. We read in verse 19 this. Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. cheers, guys. Good, good work. Just pop it there. Uh, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body given for you. Now, why does he use bread to symbolize his body? As I said, there was loads of stuff on the table. There was lots he could have used. I think that there are three reasons. First of all, again, when we read in John's gospel, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. It says this, he declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, this is another link to the Exodus story. So they've been liberated um, by the blood on the doorway, and they've come out of slavery into freedom, and they've gone into the desert, and they've been wandering around in the desert, and their food has run out. And God says, sends manna from heaven, bread from heaven, down to sustain them. And Jesus is again paralleling with that story, saying, now it's me, the bread that sustained you temporarily as food does, now you are sustained eternally by me. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. His body is the bread because it sustains us. Secondly, we read the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 saying this, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. It unifies us. It unifies the church, the whole church, which is forever changing and diverging and at times arguing over differences. The purpose of the bread is to unify us. But how it achieves these two things, I think, is the most important thing. If you read what Jesus said, it says this. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples in order for them to be sustained in order for them to be unified 
he had to be broken and given out to them. He was broken. I would it was on the floor. His body, the bread of life, which sustains and unifies us, was broken for us. And it was nailed to the cross for us. And that is core to our belief. And he does not ever want us to forget what it cost him. So we are saved by the blood on the cross. We are sustained by his body. That is what it is. That is the stuff that we are taking. But why? Why do we do it? Simply put, we turn again to Jesus' words in verse 19. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, at its most simple level, that literally means take this meal to remember what was done on the cross. Um, Meals and food in our culture and our mind have have a powerful sort of effective recollection. Um, When I was probably about two, uh, I've got an older sister who's three years older than me, so she'd have been about five. We were with uh, my childminder being looked after, um, and my childminder said so. We were eating yogurt. My childminder said something, presumably very funny, I don't know, because I was two, um, as my sister took a mouthful of yogurt. And my sister burst out laughing and spat yogurt all over my childminder, like head to toe covered. Which, of course, made everyone laugh a lot more, because everyone was laughing already, and it was accident, it was fine. Um, As a two-year-old, I saw this and was like, huh, I've got a good laugh. And I've got an older sister who I sort of just try and copy with most things. So I took a big spoonful of yogurt, and I put it in my mouth, and I turned to my childminder, and I spat it in her face. (laughs) Which obviously did not get the reaction I was hoping for. Uh, I got quite a telling off. Now, I don't remember that. I was two. I have no recollection of this at all. But this story is told in my family all the time. I cannot eat a yogurt without thinking of this story. And as a family, if we're together and we eat yogurts, man, you can just know this story. Max 10 seconds into eating a yogurt, they'll be, do you remember when day? Oh, it's powerfully recollective. Now, Jesus' death on the cross is the absolute central thing to our faith. It is core to the gospel message that God loves you so much the Father would send his only son to die for you, to be broken, to be poured out for you. This is the core message. This is the thing we must remember. And Jesus' way of getting us to remember it is with a meal. We've been talking about in the office over the last couple of weeks as Ian and I have been writing this, What would the church be like if for the last 2,000 years we hadn't had communion? Now, obviously, we don't know, but I do not think the cross would be as central as it needs to be. This is how Jesus wanted us to remember it. When someone new comes into the family, have the bread, drink the wine, tell them this story. You know, he's kind of saying to us, keep telling the yogurt story, keep telling the, make sure everyone knows the yogurt story. That's what he's saying with this. He's like, if people come in, Tell it. If you've all been in one community for years and years, keep telling it because this is the story that matters. Do not forget it. Do not forget it. This is core to our community.
We remember the cross. But biblical remembrance is not just a static thing. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It is something that we engage with. You know, we're not wallowing in the past of Jesus' death. We're also not only celebrating the past of Jesus' death. Now, obviously, we do that. But biblical remembrance is this active thing that we engage with. We partake in the cross when we take communion. In Matthew 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if any of you would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus was broken and poured out to tell the world about God's love. We, as his disciples, must do the same. We partake in the cross. We must be broken and poured out to let a hurting world know that there is a God who wants to heal them, who wants to bring them back into the relationship, the freedom they were created for. And thirdly, we do this to reconnect with the God of the cross. At the um, Soul Survivor Festivals this year, uh, Mike Pilavacci, who's the guy who leads them, uh, said this, which he says a lot, and it's words that have been with me sort of throughout my, my faith. He's talking about our faith. It is not a religion. It's not a bunch of rules. It is a relationship. We have a relationship with God. And all relationships need maintenance. So Rach and I, Rach my wife, we are married. Uh, we live together. We see each other every day. We talk to each other every day. Um, but that is not enough on its own to maintain and flourish our relationship. We can normally sort of do that sort of day-to-day -day for maybe two, maybe three weeks um, until we kind of become more like housemates than husband and wife. And we are not the best housemates. Um, I, am, I love tidying, but I do not like cleaning. Rach loves cleaning, but does not like tidying, which you would think would be the perfect combination, but actually, I just don't clean, and Rach doesn't tidy, uh, and chaos breaks out. We would not, you know, if we weren't married, we would not live together. We would not be good housemates. So what we've done in order to sort of maintain and get our relationship to flourish is we've put in a weekly date night. Um, to aid our creativity with this, we have worked through the countries alphabetically, um, taking it in turns which one you're going to plan, and we have had so much fun. We have made carnival masks for Brazil. Uh, we've eaten pizza by the fire outside. We made our own sushi for Japanese night. Um, I was really impressed that I made my own sushi. Not so much? Okay. Um, <coughs> God is everywhere. God is with you at every moment of every day. In the same way that Rachel and I see each other every day, we talk every day. But it is so important to have moments of reconnection. Now, there are so many ways you can reconnect with God. Reading the Bible, spending time in silence and solitude, prayer, worship, all of that. Communion is one of the best. This is how we reconnect with the God of the cross. I was speaking to David Pike a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's a member of our church, really, really wonderful and wise man. And I was sort of saying to him, you know, what do you think about communion? What is it? What, what does it do? Why do we do it? Tell me all of your wise thoughts. And he said this, it is a means of grace. It is a romance. And I just thought, that is absolutely perfect. That is what it is. It is a romance. It's a means of grace. It is how we reconnect with God. 
We take communion to remember the cross, to partake in the cross, and to reconnect with the God of the cross. From a practical note of how do we take it, you may have guessed we're going to take communion. It'd be weird if we didn't. Um, so I will explain like the practicalities of how it works in a minute. And we're, we're kind of a sip and a bread tear kind of church. So that's what it's going to look like. I'll explain what that looks like. But what, I'm, what I just want to spend a couple of minutes quickly talking about is the practicalities of how do you take communion? How do I take communion? What is the posture of my heart as I, as I do this? What should it be? Because... In my experience, Christians tend to sort of pendulum between two extremes, well, not extremes, two, two viewpoints, one of sort of reverence and awe for this meal, and the other is a very relaxed familiarity with it. Now, both are fine, but when it's not fine is when you're like, my view is right, every other view is wrong, and I'm going to doggedly tell everybody about that. Um, so when Rach and I first met, uh, we, our first year was long distance, uh, so we had a lot of phone calls, a lot of like, okay, you know, what was your childhood like? What do you want to do in the future? Um, and church came up a lot, and our faith came up a lot, um, because we were both working for a church at the time, and obviously our faith is sort of central to our lives. Um, we agreed on a lot of stuff. We did not agree on this. Um, I was raised a good little Anglican boy, um, out very much on the reverence and awe side of things. Uh, and Rachel had been raised in a Baptist church, but she'd moved to London and was in a non-denominational free church where they would do the sort of the rip and the... Um, but at the end, if there was any left over, they'd put the bread here and the children at the end of their groups, presumably having been starved in their groups the way they came in, would run in and just tear at it like a pack of hyenas until there was like nothing left, not even crumbs. The table was gone. <clears throat> and I was like... Little, little Anglican Dave was like, what are you doing? You can't, they don't know what it means. They don't know that. And she was like, oh, chill out. Like, it's a family meal. What are you worried about? We have reconciled <laughs> our differences mainly um, about this. Because if, and in true vineyard style, I want to suggest that it is both and. It is both, re- <laughs> woo, it's like our thing. <laughs> little middle child. Guys, come on, it can be both. <laughs> It is both reverence and awe and relaxed familiarity. These two can be held in tandem. Now, this is something that we in our faith do a lot of, okay? We have a God who is king and sovereign, but also who is our dad. We have a Lord and a savior who's also a brother and a friend. So this sort of, this, this, not parallel, paradox is something we, we should be used to holding. And I think we can do it with communion as well. But overarchingly, over the reverence and the familiarity, we take this meal joyfully. Now, I wanted to illustrate this, and I was sort of talking through with Rach how I should do it, and she came up with this metaphor, and I want to credit her with it, if it's good. <laughs> if it's bad and heresy, talk to her, I don't know. Um, but what, how we view this, okay, is it is not like a kid's birthday party, okay, where it's just like everyone's being silly and you're shoveling sugar down their throats and there's clowns and all that kind of thing. It's not like that. But neither is it like a funeral. You don't have to affect this solemn face. You don't have to feel really bad about everything that's ever happened. 
Instead, how we hold intention, this reverence and this familiarity overarchingly with joy is that this is like a wedding. It is serious. It is reverent. It is beautiful. It is joyful, but it's also full of family and friends and kids running around making noise and celebrating together. And that is how I want us to take this. So what's going to happen? There'll be a station here and a station there and a station there at the back. Um, oh, shall we? Oh, it's like there. No, never mind. Um, if you... <laughs> if you, okay, no, no, there won't be. Oh, thinking on my feet. No, I'm not going to think on my feet. No. Um, if you're on the floor, I want you to go to the back one, up this central aisle, and then also come back the central aisle. This is, this is not important. This is just so it flows well. It doesn't really matter if this goes wrong. Um, if you are on, there's like a dividing line up there. If you're on that side, come down to this one and then go back up that aisle as well. Likewise, if you're on that side, come down to this one and go back up that way as well. If, like, you're in a really long queue and the other one's empty, just go over there. That doesn't matter. There's going to be gluten-free bread over here as well. Um, so the band are going to come up and play. And I just want to say, like, I'm going to leave this here. Look at it with reverence as we worship. Do that with with joy and with reverence as well. But do not feel like you have to be really solemn. You know, this is the family meal. We are a family. Talk to each other. Catch up. How's your day been? How's your summer been? All of that is fine. We don't have to do this in silence, okay? Um, so the band are going to come up. We're going to, the guys who are doing the stations are going to come and grab them. And I'm just going to pray and then we're going to take communion together. Jesus, we love you. All of our hope and our joy and our life comes from you. We are saved by your blood. We are sustained by your body. And what a gift this is to the church. And we thank you for it. And as we take it, Lord, would we be family? I pray if there's anyone here who feels like they are not part of a family, that that would change in this moment. Lord, would you unify us? Would your joy fill this room, Father?